Well, if you take it down for a minute so that it will work, we won't tell on you. All right. Well, let's pray. Uh, we finished Psalm 119 last week, so jump into Psalm 5. Give ear to our words, O Lord, and consider our groaning. Give attention to the sound of our cry, our God and our King, for to you do we pray. O Lord, in the morning you hear our voices. In the morning we prepare a sacrifice for you and, and watch. For you are a God who delights not in wickedness, and evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. But we, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. We will bow down before your holy temple in the fear of you. Lead us, O Lord, in your righteousness because of our enemies. Make your way straight before us. For there is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Because of the abundance of their transgression, cast them out. For they have rebelled against you. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them, that those who love your name may exalt in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover us with favor as with a shield. Amen. So there is a tradition, uh, I'm not sure which part of Judaism it's in, but there's a tradition um, that uh, you get up every morning and you pray Psalm 5. You know, verse 3 kind of points you in that direction. In the morning you hear my voice, in the morning I prepare a sacrifice and watch. And, uh, and Psalm 6 pairs with it, and so we're going to use Psalm 6 next week. Um, and uh, um, I think that would be an interesting experiment to take those two psalms and to use them kind of morning and evening for a month and just kind of see what that does in the way that you think about life and the way that you think about, you know, what God is doing and, and uh, how he protects us and uh, living in a world where there's hostility against uh, the faith, you know, recognizing that. Um, I, I think that would be an interesting thing. And it would be another way of going slowly through the word um you know we're going slowly through romans just kind of a couple verses at a time but another way to go slowly is to just kind of linger on a chapter or two and keep going over it for a period of time and just you know listening to the word and letting um letting the spirit work through the word uh in our lives so you know if, if you if you end up deciding that you'd like to do that uh, I would be curious to uh, to know how that goes for you. Um, let me know. Um, I'm actually I'm actually trying to get into the habit of doing something with Psalm 23. Um, I translated it, and so I'm keeping trying to keep going through it like every evening in the in the Hebrew because I'm a big nerd. Um, <laughs> but uh, um, just kind of meditating on that Psalm um, and lingering in there. So. For whatever that's worth, we're in Psalm or in Romans, chapter six. 
Romans chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. Paul writes, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? So what, what Paul is doing here is he is presenting a, a warped logic. Uh, it's, in fact, the warped logic that I was kind of making some smart remarks about before. You know, um, you know, sin boldly, which means, you know, don't even think about it. Just keep going, you know. Um, don't worry about whether or not there's forgiveness or consequence. You just boldly sin. Well, no, that's not what we're supposed to do. Or um, as uh, a member uh, quoted to me once, you know, with the woman at uh, the uh, uh, the woman caught in adultery, uh, Jesus says, "Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin some more." <laughs> well, no, that's not what we're called to do. Um, and in here, the idea is, well, if I sin, I get grace. Getting grace is good, so maybe I should sin more so I get more grace. And his response to that is. It's a pretty pointed one. But, you know, the question, should, should we continue? Should we tarry? Should we remain in sin so that grace may increase, so that grace may abound? And what he's starting to do is he's, he's turning us towards sanctification. Uh, he's talking about how our life changes when we live in the Christian faith. And this is something that... Um, I, you know, sometimes I think that, uh, that we Lutherans get dinged on a little bit. We don't talk enough about how we should live in response to the gospel. You know, your sins are forgiven, go in peace. Which is the heart and the core of the message. But there is a life to be lived as well. And that ethical part of this matters. The trick is that the way that our hearts are hardwired, is that we get so focused on the ethical part of things, what must I do, that sometimes when we start talking about that, we get fixated on that and lose sight of the cross and lose sight of you know, that this whole relationship with God is a gift. And so sometimes, sometimes we shy away from preaching the whole counsel of God because of that. And, uh, um, and I'm probably as guilty as anybody. Um, but God does care about how we live and the things that we do. You know, uh, Micah 6, verse 8, uh, a very familiar passage that, uh, that speaks to how we should live. Um, Yahweh, that's, that's God's name. Whenever you're reading the Old Testament, have you ever noticed that, that sometimes the word LORD is in all caps? Yeah, that's this name. Um, this is the name that God gave himself at uh, the burning bush. I am who I am. So essentially, this word means he is, um, in, in kind of God's name, all right? Um, so the Lord has made known to you, O man, um, the word man there is actually Adam. Uh, I think that's a nice tie back considering what we just went through with the first man and the new man. Um, you know, the, uh, the, the first man brings sin into the world. The new man brings righteousness. The Lord has made known to you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord seek from you? Indeed, he seeks whether uh, you are to do justice or to love loving kindness. Uh, whenever you see loving kindness in the Old Testament, 
tie that to grace. That, that is the Old Testament um, concept of grace. To love grace uh, or, to, or to be humble, to walk with your God. And, and so it, it's seeking after justice. You know, that's, that's part of the, the relationship that God wants his people to have with one another. To do what is right by one another. To have grace with one another. To live in forgiveness and mercy and, and, and in his salvation. And to be humble. And uh, um, there, there is no overabundance in, in any of those things in this world. They're all things that we strive for and, and uh, often notice the lack uh, when we deal with people. Uh, Ezekiel 18, 28 um, God speaks to, uh, to Ezekiel. He says, If a wicked person turns from all his sins that he has committed and keeps all my statutes and does what is just and right, he shall surely live, he shall not die. God wants a change of behavior in us. Now, we like to look at that and say, well, these are the behaviors that we would like to see. And, and when God speaks of this change of behavior, he sees far more deeply than we do. And, you know, even, even just looking at who our God is, it, that's a change in our heart and it's a change in our lives. You know, the first commandment is you shall have no other gods. So if you go from living completely and totally for yourself to, you know, believing and trusting in God for your forgiveness and salvation, that is a change. You know, it isn't, uh, we have our lives completely and totally together and, you know, once we come to faith. There is a process to the sanctification part. And as he hits this, it affirms uh, the life of repentance. It has an ethical component. When we repent of our sins, we seek to change our behaviors. Now, are we always successful in that? No. no. No, we're not. We're not. Some days it feels like we're never quite successful. And, and we're going to be ashamed sometimes, and we're going to be frustrated sometimes. I think but it's a real process. I mean, it's a process. You know, and, and hopefully you're going to get better and better. But what if you don't? Well, I'm just, just maybe you weren't that bad to begin with. <laughs> <laughs> keep on keeping me. on. Repentance, it, it's really important for us to remember that repentance and the striving to change, it's always rooted in grace and, and not abuse of grace. So... When we keep failing, we keep going back to, to the forgiveness that we have in Christ. And we find comfort and peace there. But at the same time, we don't use that as an excuse to go and sin some more. Mm -hmm. You know, we, we, we completely and totally trust in Jesus for our forgiveness and, and find our salvation in Him. In, in, let him be completely and totally our only hope before the Father. 
but because he is our only hope before the Father. We strive to live differently. We don't want to linger in sin. We don't want to continue in sin that, quote-unquote, grace might abound. Grace is already abounding. We, we don't need to sin more in order to get more grace. He pours it out lavishly, and we never quite shuck it anyhow. And so we're always living in that, that hope and that confidence that, that God continues to pour the grace on us. So should we continue in sin to get more grace? He says, by no means. I like to translate that little phrase just, no way. It's literally, may it not be, or it cannot be, or something along those lines. You know, no way. What a ridiculous thought that we should continue in sin to get more grace. We, we already have plenty of sin in us. We're always kind of pulled back in that direction. And he's taking us back to this, this important premise that we have died to sin. And if we have died to sin, this question becomes, how then will we live in sin? That relationship is cut off. Don't go back to it. And he continues. He says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Do you not know? So, what is Paul's tone of voice here? You know, um, I, I, I think that he is speaking with a sense of wonder and awe. Um, he could be speaking, you know, in terms of an accusation. You know, are you ignorant? Because you could translate it that way. But I think, I think that there's a sense of, do you not know how, how incredible what we've experienced is? that whoever of us has been baptized into Christ has been baptized <coughs> into his death. Now, I, I want to pause on the idea of baptism for a while and what, what the scriptures are teaching us here about what it means to be baptized. When it says that we are baptized into Christ and baptized into his death, um, baptized is a passive past tense verb. It's something that is done to us. Not Which something, is why it makes sense to have infant baptism. That's part of it, absolutely. It's, it's something that God does to us. Um, so I'm going to walk through some passages here that speak to, to baptism. And the first one that, that we should look at is Matthew 28, 19, and, and 20, where... Jesus says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Now when you look at this, this sentence, this great commission, right? The command in here is to make disciples. A lot of people, they like to talk about, you know, go. Go is actually a, a participle and it sets the context for the making of disciples. So you could translate this, as you are going, make disciples. 
And then you have two other uh, supporting participles that go back to making disciples. And they're telling us how to do this. This is how you make disciples. Baptizing and teaching. So he says, you want to make disciples? This is how we go about it. We baptize people in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We teach them the gospel. Now, this is not a uh, first baptize, second teach. It's both things are to happen. It doesn't matter the order, but these are, it's, it's kind of a binary process that both take place when we believe in Jesus. It's not like in Bede where he recounts uh, there was a battle between the Northumbrians and the Picts where they set a bunch of monks out in the river and they splash water on the Picts to baptize them as they were crossing. Right. Otherwise, we would just get fire hoses and, you know, start spraying everybody down. In the name of, of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. As they come out of the junior high building. Yes. You would need a lot of holy water coming out of a junior high building. <laughs> That's why I chose that one. They um, are, Mormons, um, they baptize people who've already died and yeah. they've never even spoken with. Right. Yeah, you know, so somebody steps in as a proxy in, in their place and is baptized on their behalf. There is something about that in First um, Corinthians. It's kind of one of those weird passages. He asks, why are people baptized for the dead if there is no resurrection? Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, I, I remember spending a lot of time talking about, about that. What does that mean? And uh, one of the things that uh, the professor that we were talking about with any, that anyhow uh, says, notice he doesn't say this approvingly. And he is also talking to the Corinthians. These are his absolute problem children. It's a good bet if he's talking to the Corinthians that... <laughs> There's something wrong going on. Yeah. So baptism is also a process of receiving the Holy Spirit? Um, not a process of it, but it is a moment when we do receive the Spirit. You know, it, it, it's all tied together. You know, so the gift is completely given in baptism. Um, process has this... Um, feeling of it as you know something that kind of goes on with time when you're baptized you have the spirit and the same is true when you come to faith because you can't come to faith without the spirit so we we talk about means of grace ways that god works to bring uh, forgiveness and faith to us and and we recognize three Uh, uh, and the first is the word and then baptism and then the lord's supper but I want you also notice that when we talk about the word, we're, you know, it's preaching what Christ has said to us. But when we baptize, it's not just water; it's water connected to and combined with God's word. word. Or when we receive the Lord's Supper, which is different than baptism, it's not just bread and wine; it's bread and wine connected to and combined with God's word. word. So in all of these cases, it's the word of God that's doing the work even through these visible physical elements. Um, and, and God has given us those gifts in order to deliver his grace to us. And when he delivers grace to us, he gives us his spirit. So a, a, another passage for baptism. Mark 16, 16. 
Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, and whoever does not believe will be condemned. So, over the years, I've heard this one uh, talked about, and uh, um, they people will like to, to uh, focus in that last half and half and say, whoever does not believe will be condemned. To say that faith is 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 the key thing in this passage, and I would agree that that faith is the key to receiving Jesus' salvation. Faith comes, you know, um, we we receive God's grace by faith, but. When he says that whoever believes and is baptized, that should not be overlooked. You know, because when we believe, we will be baptized. Jesus is not say, you know, does not say, um, you know, as you're going, make disciples of all nations, and if they feel like it, they can be baptized. He says they need to be baptized. They need to be taught. And, and so, bapti- baptism and believing—they're they're tied closely together. They're part of the Christian life. Um, and I—I uh, uh, I would point out that um, when I've had people who are reticent to get baptized, you know, I don't know if I want to make the commitment. I don't know, you know, if, if I'm comfortable standing up in front of everybody. Um, that's part of what I've talked with them about is this isn't a matter of, you know, you choosing to do this. This is part of this whole kit and caboodle. Jesus says you need to be baptized. Do you believe what Jesus says to you? Well, they're, oh, it, well, yeah. Well, he's saying this is part of the process of being one of his disciples, to be baptized, where he'll give you these gifts. And sometimes people are like, oh, well, that makes sense then. I want that. And other times it's a long, long conversation. What if I don't feel good enough to be baptized? And nevertheless, Jesus says to make disciples and baptized and taught. And that's where he gives his gift. It's not a matter about your goodness. It's a matter of what Jesus is doing there. Because again, passive verb, Right? It's not you doing this, it's Jesus doing this, working through his church. Another passage, Acts 2, 38. Uh, Pentecost, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, to give the context, Peter has just uh, preached a very powerful sermon to the people, and uh, it says that the people were cut to the heart, and they asked him, what should we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized. Again, passive, um, uh, it, but at this time an imperative. You know, so it's a command. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You know, so here he connects that giving of the Holy Spirit to being baptized, and. When, when he says, you know, repent, he means, you know, this is an active imperative. Turn away from your sin and be baptized. Again, like what I was saying before about, you know, being baptized and being taught, that those are not one and two, but both things that need to happen. Repent and be baptized are not one and two steps. It's these things happen. You are going to repent and be baptized. They're both part of the the life 
and then we receive the Holy Spirit as, as part of, uh, of what God is doing in our lives there as he uh, delivers that forgiveness of our sins through baptism and through faith. And uh, in Acts 10, this one is another one I find really interesting. Um, in Acts 10, this is the account of Peter going and visiting Cornelius, the centurion. Are you familiar with this? Um, okay, so um, basically Cornelius was a devout Roman. He was a centurion, so he's a Roman soldier. And um, he, he was basically kind of Jewish, but maybe not completely. He was definitely a Gentile. He was very friendly with the Jewish people, and he believed in God. But he didn't necessarily really believe in Jesus yet. And, uh, and he was praying, uh, and uh, God sent an angel to him and told him to get a guy by the name of Peter, who was staying with a guy by the name of Simon, who was a tanner, um, uh, makes leather. And, uh, and so this Roman centurion sends a couple of people to uh, get Peter, and Peter has kind of a wonky vision <laughs> in this, and and um, they're waiting on the ground, and he's up on the on the roof, and they ask for him, and, and he goes with them, and uh, and he tells them about Jesus, and and talks about you know what Jesus has done, uh, and they come to faith, and as a sign of the fact that they came to faith, God gave gave an extra uh, mark for the moment. It says that his spirit came upon them and the earth shook. Um, and I'm trying to remember if they spoke in tongues at that time or not. I don't think so. I think was, the, the place was shaken. Um, and Peter is just in awe of that moment because there's a debate at this time. Can Gentiles, can non-Jewish people be believers? And this is a pretty powerful testimony of, you know, God sends you to speak to these people. Then he shakes the place to say, you know, they're, they're, you know the faith is genuine here. The spirit has come upon them here. Um, he, he then replies, he says, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus. It's kind of funny that you mentioned that uh, debate about the Gentiles because God will sometimes do this thing, and I, I remember this in, I believe it's Kings, with, um, with uh, Elijah and the, um, and the sort of dueling sacrifices. Uh, yeah, yeah. God will often do this where he, uh, where he intentionally you know, puts barriers in front of himself to show you how great he is. And um, in terms of a Gentile, not only was he able to baptize a Gentile, but he was able to baptize a centurion. And a centurion is sort of like the worst possible drill sergeant that you can possibly think of. Um, there was, uh, there's an accountant in um, Horus of a centurion by the, uh, that he called Dame Alterum, because it means hand me another. Uh, because he would beat his soldiers with a stick, and the stick would break, and he would say, Dame Um So, if you're able to baptize a centurion, you really have something going on. Yeah, these are professional soldiers. Mm -hmm. They are not soft people. Yeah. Um, 
And they don't have any rules about being nice to the native peoples. No, they don't. Um, Whatever you can get away with, beat them. Go ahead. Yeah, you know, well, there, there's, there's a two-class system with the Romans. You know, the Romans have all the rights, and and there there are rights for the, uh, the non-citizens, but there's significantly less than you for the You have the Romans. right to give me what I want. You have there the right that, to yeah. get out of my way. Yeah. <laughs> yes, interesting rights. You have the right to shut up. I like that one. I sometimes remind my... No, I don't. <laughs> I, might, I might have to think about that one for confirmation class, though. Um, 1 Peter 3.21. So Peter starts talking about Noah's flood and how God... This is, this is a different way of looking at it than the way our world tends to look at this. God saved the world through the flood. He wiped out the wickedness he, he destroyed uh that which was you know killing the world um and uh um and then he starts talking about baptism that baptism which corresponds to the flood now saves you not as removal from dirt from the body but as an appeal to god for a good conscience because your your conscience is just flooded with God's forgiveness and his mercy and and it's it's an act where you know the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all unrighteousness right it's kind of a, Michael Card calls this a violent grace it's a it's a grace that comes to us in in this really strange way and what's in us needs to be purged and and that's what he what he's comparing this to is that that baptism brings that purging, brings that cleansing in order that we could stand before God with a good conscience. And that happens through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And you don't have a resurrection without the death. Um, and that Jesus has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels and authorities and powers having been subjected to him. Now, I, I kind of lingered on this um, because denominations are, are really divided on their understanding of uh, holy baptism. That's one of the points. It's, that's a, a, a pretty big dividing point for uh, different Christians. Uh, and this is one of the key distinctives to look for you know, when checking out another you know, congregation or church body's teaching. You know, um, not that I you know, want any of you to go anywhere or anything like that. You know, but people do move and, uh, and things happen like that. And it, you know, what, what are you looking for? You know, I think a lot of times people, you know, they're like, you know, well, what's the pastor like? And, you know, does he have a halfway decent personality? Uh, is the sermon okay? The service okay? And, and I'm not saying that those things don't matter. And, and I, I, I work really hard in, in some of those areas. Um, but in a lot of ways, the bigger thing is, are they teaching what the Bible says? Are, 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 are you, you know, finding yourselves aligned, you know, scripturally um, with the church that you're going to? Are, are they feeding you uh, good food? Uh, you know, so um, it, it's worth spending some time really thinking about, you know, what, uh, what do we believe and how do we look at what God is doing in baptism? And, and that's why um, down at the bottom of the page, further reading on baptism, um, you would have a hard time doing better than the sections on baptism in here in the small catechism. 
you know, especially if you jump back to the stuff, um, you know, with the scripture passages in the back. But even what Luther writes is just so, it's beautiful. And the same is true in the large catechism. It's just, just, just lovely. It's some of the best stuff that he writes. And uh, really encourage you, you know, it, if you don't know where your catechism is, or if you don't have one, um, if you don't know where it is, you know, look for it and dig it out. Um, but if you don't have one, let me know. Um, I, I, I like to give these away kind of like candy. I, I think that uh, no, 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 other than the Bible, no book has ever been more formational for me than this little thing right here. You know, and I know, okay, I guess this doesn't look all that little, but the catechism itself is, you know, that part. And then the stuff behind is all just Bible verses and supporting type of Questions stuff. Questions and answers. Yeah. <clears throat> who, who can baptize? A Christian. Yep. It doesn't have to be a pastor. Um, you know, so in, any Christian can baptize. We tend to prefer that uh, you know it happens in the church and then a pastor do it. Um, and that's really kind of in, in the... The sense of doing things with decency and order, you know, but it it doesn't have to be a pastor by any stretch of the imagination. You know, God gives the gift to the church. You know, um, and uh, this might sound a little bit radical, um, but I think you could make the same argument with the Lord's Supper. Um, it's less likely that you find yourself in an emergency to have to have the Lord's Supper. You know, most of the time when uh, lay people baptize somebody, it's kind of an end-of-life situation. You know, uh, the, the classic picture is, you know, the baby has been born, you know, and might not make it through the hour, and so the nurse baptizes the baby in the, in, in the hospital. Um, you know, that, that's, that's kind of a different type of a setting. Um, that being said... Uh, I once uh, visited a, a lady um, in the maternity ward, her brand new baby. And I was like, so have you given any thought, you know, to, uh, well, not have you given any thought, but I'm looking forward to when, uh, you know, we'll get the baby in and we'll baptize him. And she wouldn't meet my eyes. <laughs> and something inside of me said, oh? And I was like, did you baptize him already? She's like, yes. <laughs> I was like, okay, no problem. When you're ready, I'd like to do a, a public recognition of baptism. Because baptism isn't just about me and Jesus. It's about me and Jesus and you and all of us. It's that whole fellowship of, of the faith. We're, we are part of the body of Christ. We're all connected to him. You know, in, in the, like this family, you know, and so baptism is a fantastic moment and it should be recognized and celebrated. You know, that's, that's one of the big reasons we like to have baptisms in church, not because, well, this is the right place for it to happen. It's that the whole body is there and, and rejoices in it. It's one of the reasons I don't like doing uh, private baptisms. This past 18 months or whatever, I've done way more than I've ever done. You know, and it does happen from time to time that people, you know, they can't get people or they struggle to get people together 
on Sunday morning and so can we do a different time you know and I, I'm generally willing to work with that but boy oh boy to have it there in the service I think that there's a huge encouragement to everybody because what you're watching there is God delivering forgiveness and salvation to a, a person and connecting them into the body adopting them as you know one of his children it's a, it's a beautiful thing and a reminder of our own baptism it is a reminder of our own baptism too how do people do it? How does a layperson do it? You have water and the word. That's what you need. So you get water. I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Because you know, that's what Jesus says, you know, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, there are different modes that people will use for that. Um, what we tend to do is, is pour it, you know. Um, I know that there's a shell. Well, yeah. So I'm a Baptist. I'm here with Wesley. I'm his mom, so don't kick me out. No, no. <laughs> we have a baptismal in our church. So it's basically a pool behind all of yep. And uh, you walk down in, basically, the pastor's in his waiters and his choir gown, and uh, whoever's getting baptized, yep. they walk into the water. They have a handkerchief, they declare, you know, I was 10 when I got baptized. But um, you basically stand in front of the church, you declare that you've given your life to Christ, and they baptize you, and they just kind of dunk you right in front of everybody, and you yep. get up, and everybody applauds. So. That's that's immersion. That's immersion, yeah. And that's one of the, that is definitely one of the modes. I've, uh, I've baptized two people through immersion um, in Haiti, yeah. in the Caribbean. We baptized someone with, in LCMK um, with immersion. We did it at a uh, at a lake. Okay. So, I love immersion because of the symbolism that's involved with it. The old person goes into the water, a new person comes up. You know, um, and uh, you know, all the sinful nature washed away, and a new you know person living in faith comes up. I you know, that that's kind of the symbolism that that's involved there. We tend to pour, because baptism, you know, at the heart of the core of the verb, it means to wash something. Mm -hmm. Okay, um, there is an implication of washing by dunking, but the the core of the verb is that something is washed. Um, some people will sprinkle. Uh, we've been accused of that. Okay, um, what what matters is the water and the word. Uh, you know, because when it comes to washing away sin, it doesn't matter how much you scrub. You know, and you know there there is nothing that says that, that this is the way it is to be done. Um, in, in terms of that, what we would call the mode, um, there are little baptismal fonts that go back to the first century that that show that you know the whole pouring was done very early in, in the church. The DDK. Uh, the Didache talks about that too, yeah. Pour three times. Yep. So, so yeah, you know, um, when, uh, how did I get there? Um, so the, the heart and the core of the matter is, you know, water and the word. There are other things that we like to do around that. Uh, we like to have a, a just kind of a general prayer. Uh, you know, we like to, um, 
tell that story about when Jesus, the little children were coming to Jesus to, because usually when we're doing baptisms here, it's you know with a, with a child, you know, let the little children come to me, do not hinder them. Um, you know, we like to talk about that. There are other passages that we read when it's an adult, um, and uh, we usually pray the Lord's Prayer together because this is the prayer that Jesus taught us. If the person can confess their faith, we like to have them speak the Apostles' Creed. That was originally the one that was written for baptisms. Um, and uh, you mentioned the Didache, the teaching of the Twelve. Um, and uh, this is a, a first century... Um, some people actually argue that it should be part of the Bible, but if you have to argue about it, it probably shouldn't be. Um, but it's, it's a very early um, Christian document. And one of the things that it says in there is if the person cannot speak for themselves, let somebody else speak on their behalf to confess the faith. You know, it, can you confess the faith differently than using the Apostles or Nicene Creed? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. But it's a pretty convenient way to do it, right? Um, there is, uh, there's one uh, member of the congregation who's blind. And when I visit her to do communion and we do confession, um, one of the things I'll, I'll, I'll just flat out ask her, you know, do you believe that you are a sinner? Yes. Do you believe that Jesus died to pay for your sins? Yes. In the stead and by the command of my Lord Jesus, I forgive you. You know, it, it isn't about the words as much as it is about the confession of faith. Um, we like to have those all be part of that. Um, we like to have prayers for the, the child or the adult or and, and for the, you know if there are parents involved here. Um, we, we like to do all that. But the meat of it is the water and the word. So he says, do you not know whoever of us has been baptized into Christ Jesus into his death we have been baptized? So I'm going to wrap this up on this point. What do you get when you get baptized? Jesus' death. death. And next week when we come together, we'll talk about why that matters. So, all right. Thanks, everybody. God's blessings.